Hello everyone, this is Kisa Shreen, and today we're going to talk about the impacts of climate change. We're seeing these impacts more and more, and in various different forms, natural disasters, as well as policy discussions, politics, and even changes in investment strategies. Now, do investors actually have a role in preventing these risks and mitigating these risks? Today with us, we have Anita Van Breda, Senior Director, Environment and Disaster Management at WWF, and Alessia Balserone, Head of Sustainable Investing at Pine Bridge Investments. Thank you both for joining Anita and Alessia. So, Anita, let's first talk about the way disaster management has changed over the last few years. Specifically, we'll like to think about and talk through the ways hazards have come to mean different things to us and underlying risks are changing. Can we speak to those two things specifically? Sure. And uh, I want to start by saying thank you for including us in this important discussion. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. Um, and I also want to recognize the experience that people are having around the world facing different disaster risks, uh, particularly the the climate uh, influence risk and disasters that are being experienced now in the U.S. on the West Coast. These are ongoing challenges and um, people are still in great need of support, um, are dealing with rescue and relief. And so I just want to put that up front that that is uh, an ongoing and urgent issue. But as you mentioned, hazards and risk are changing. And the reason why we have the Environment and Disaster Management Program at World Wildlife Fund um, is a recognition of that, that environmental issues contribute to disaster risk, but they also play a very important part in the safe and resilient recovery um, from extreme events. So it's an important piece of work, and we're learning uh, as time goes on how different hazards are changing, how that presents risk to both both people and ecosystems, and how to deal with that risk successfully for the future. We need to look at a, an integrated approach to understanding risk, understanding hazards, but also in our response and recovery efforts. And Alessia, let's look at this from the institutional investor perspective. What are these risks, such as these hazards and in the U.S., specifically the California wildfires? What should institutional investors do to adjust their strategies when they're considering such risks? Yeah, thank you, Kisa. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's in a way how how do investors relate to extreme events is, is really the question here, right? Whether they're institutional or not. And more often than not, investors' decision making um, has been really affected by the time horizon and likelihood, right, of, of a near-term context that deteriorates further. So if you're thinking about California or Oregon, for example, in the wildfires, uh, we're really thinking about, you know, the whole U.S. situation of having had over, uh, I think, 12 or, or even 14 of these multi-billion dollar uh, events um, in the U.S. just last year, and this year probably will amount to more. So uh, investors, they think exposures uh, no matter the root cause of an extreme event, uh, could be weather, could be bankruptcy filing, right? Um, the first question that investors ask is, do I know, do I own it 
directly in my portfolio. Uh, now, if not, um, any other adjacent risk I'm facing as a result of conditions deteriorating further, obviously, you know, needs to be considered. So um, the fact is investors at first, um, they start zooming in at one point on the map, right, in a very localized fashion, and then they expand you know, their lens after zooming, you know, in in that particular exposure as time goes. Um, Where I see the importance of the situation, what Anita just said, that, you know, obviously um, risk prevention in this case uh, has to change and has changed, is that investors continue to fail to do several things. The the first one is even the ones with very advanced analytical capabilities, um, call it prediction analytics over extreme weather events and call insurance over insurance companies, for example, um, you know, which directly link um, the outcome of an extreme event and a disaster to financial impact is, again, this ability to zoom in out of that localized mode sooner and start looking for, in a way, balancing effects, uh, which I usually call somewhere else on that geographic map, which may end up affecting the total loss, both financial, environmental, and human, which is associated with that with that catastrophe. When we're looking, Anita and Alessia, when we're looking at prevention, my thought is partnerships would likely play a role in mitigating and preventing such future events. What do these partnerships look like? So in terms of institutional investors and governments, how do these partnerships come about? And then once they're in play, what is the expectation around solving for these things? Anita and Alessia, we'll love for you both to chime in and get your thoughts there. Um, again, as I was, uh, I was um, saying earlier, how to solve for it, right? Uh, when you're thinking about including metrics in the evaluation of hazard and uncertainty and all the risks that call in a variety of disciplines, right? Like uh, Anita was pointing out before. So you have, on one hand, risk management perspective to the hazard prevention. On the other hand, you also have climate change adaptation all the way to sustainable development. Right. If you're thinking where the, the catastrophe is localized, then you understand that the, the alliance has to be slightly different. Um, and again, in the developing world, for example, there is certainly a need to strengthen and build capacity of monitoring. Right. Um, it's completely different than in the case of California. Right. So that coordinated really data collection can help uh, move in a way that uh, that thinking and, and that partnering and those partnerships together. Um, for example, what I think is extremely helpful is when we're thinking about resilience, thinking of resilience, at least from an investor's perspective, building layers. Uh, so I call it an influence map, you know, which investors have available and they need to tap in, uh, which is that old network of government, national bodies, you're talking about municipalities, um, and scientific bodies, in this case, NGOs, in a forward-looking way that obviously allows for um, early intervention, but planning for, and, and that would ultimately reduce uh, both the human and the financial cost of future disasters. Um, so that in a way, how does this influence map have worked over time so that resources can indeed be pulled to confront um, these type of risks? Mm, great. And Anita, Anita, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, that's great. And I have uh, almost exactly the same thoughts of what Alicia just said. And if we replace what she said in terms of the private sector and companies with uh, civil society organizations and NGOs, we have almost the same approach. Um, And Kisia, you mentioned partnerships, and that is a fundamental element to the work that I do 
um, integrating the environment and disaster management. And that's key uh, for us all going forward. So we're trying to move away from the notion uh, that climate change adaptation or resilience building is the responsibility of a department or a team or an individual. No, we all have to build our own capacity to understand what is adaptation, what is resilience, and what is my role and responsibility in contributing to that. And so we are working very deliberately within WWF to look at how to build the capacity to do that, to try to facilitate that type of um, multi-participant, if you will, analysis and then response. Because the way that the world is changing, the number, scale, and scope of hazards and risks that we are all facing, it, it will be virtually impossible for one group, one organization, one sector to address that. We really have to figure out how to do that more successfully together. And so I am very committed, for example, to training the next generation of practitioners and actively facilitating their ability, whether they're working for an NGO like WWF or Red Cross or CARE or the private sector company or those working um, in the public sector with governments, we all need to be able to work together, understand each other, and communicate in a way in order to deal with these hazards and risks that we're facing. One word that I hear that I heard from both of you and it keeps coming up is resilience. So resilience planning, determining um, resilience. Is there a top three, you know, who want to give a three-step process for these are the top three things that we should think about that any entity should think about when it comes to resilience. Um, this crosses sectors, this crosses regions. Sure, um, that that is an interesting and a complicated challenge that you put to us. Um, we, we hear the word resilience a lot these days, um, and we all think of resilience as a as a good um, and positive thing, and, and by and large it is, but bad things can also be resilient, right? So we really have to, one, sort of clarify uh, when we say resilience, what do we mean by that? Um, and, and then look at a comprehensive approach to understanding you know, what needs to be resilient, who needs to be resilient, how do you need to be resilient, um, and then how do you get there? Um, so it's a matter of... Uh, taking the time and the effort and having the space uh, to th think about what it means for, for, for you and how you're thinking of that term and that word and that approach, um, and then working with others to, to maybe expand that perspective. Um, and I know that you know within WWF, my colleagues who specifically work with the uh, private sector, they take a three basically a three-pronged approach. One is to help uh, the private sector look at uh, where is risk, what is resilience, and then how to prioritize uh, those issues. And then secondly, looking at nature-based um, approaches to try to address that resilience objective or, or that risk. And then thirdly, to collaborate with others because of what we were just talking about in terms of the integrated need uh, to address these things over time. Perfect. Perfect. And the last question here, just want to get your thoughts about 
have the philosophies of corporations and investors, have they changed over the last few years? And if so, what would you say was the benchmark event or the time period? And then where is, in terms of our hoped for desired outcome, where would we like these mindsets to be, say, in 12 months or 18 months or so? I think he said that, um, you know, I have a very visual image of, of you know, growing up in a highly seismic uh, region in central Italy. Um, and so your question reminds me, 2017 alone, uh, we had six months of deadly earthquakes, which resulted in 24 billion losses for the country, but, you know, hundreds of, of deaths, right? So when we're thinking about resilience building programs and, and you know, we have to consider that climate change uh, can't be uh, approached without, uh, you know, putting in, in the context of demographic change as well. Uh, and now, obviously, population is 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 shifted and transitioned over time. Where 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 the rebuilding happens and so on and so forth. So I think, from my perspective, that the changing nature of demographics um, is something that obviously is grabbing a lot more of headlines um, um, along the lines of the sustainable development, obviously, uh, issues or or uh, goals and ambitions that you know world has in, along with investors. Uh, yet, you know, I, I go back to how many days go by after an extreme event, call it the wildfires, uh, before investors start, number one, worrying about their longer-term consequences, and number two, thinking about other negative externalities that are associated with this increased social cost of these extreme events, uh, which affect not just the local ecosystem, as I said, the zooming in effect, um, but you have access to productivity in a specific region that is obviously affected by extreme events. Um, so I think going back to uh, what Anita just said, it is not just about what has changed, um, you know, in, in what headline may have switched, um, you know, sort of the focus on um, how do we build resilience uh, and what we mean by that, uh, but also the fact that this is a dynamic process um, that that can be even even more prolonged than rebuilding infrastructure or physical infrastructure itself, right? If you're thinking about the loss of biodiversity, if you're thinking about the increased level of pollution and so and so on and so forth, um, and the loss of direct access of mobility or connectivity, that all goes into place when we're discussing also the demographic change that we're facing. Uh, so I think, again, the topic of demographic change is probably what is affecting that influence map uh, that investors should and have started to look at, uh, but also the way we build, obviously, resilience over the long term. And, and Anita, if you had, um, you know, a, a magical ability to kind of shift the future and what 12 months from now or 18 months from now would look like, whether it be from a policy perspective or whether it be from a collaboration perspective, what would be your desired outcome to be able to do that? I, I think it would be really helpful if 12 months from now um, the we in this community and the role that we play, whether we're working for an NGO like mine or in the private sector, um, is to shift the focus on extreme events from the headline grabbing event itself and the aftermath um, and w focus more attention and time and effort investment on risk reduction before the extreme events. There's all sorts of perverse incentives uh, to to focus on the event and its aftermath, and we need to shift the, the dynamics to focus more on preventing these bad things from happening. Um, and I think that would that would point the way 
to great progress in addition to what Alexia said about uh, you know, looking at this from an integrated fashion and understanding that we in our in our roles uh, can no longer work separately in our silos, um, but we have to do the hard work of figuring out how to work more together successfully. Mm, great information. So we've heard today that risk prevention and hazard, the way we think about hazards, it's really changing. We have tools now such as prediction, predictive analytics around extreme weather events. Also, sustainable development, risk management, prevention, analytics, and data collection all play a role in prevention and mitigation. But it takes a village, municipalities, scientific bodies, private companies, and NGOs. These sorts of partnerships can really work toward reducing the human and financial costs around these disasters. Also, we need to clarify what does resilience mean to us, to individual companies, um, and more corporately as a society, and also look at constructing a plan to get there. Um, finally, some critical points that shifted how many of us think about these sorts of risks. Demographic changes, one critical point. Loss of biodiversity, as well as changing into sustainable business models. And um, the last word we'll have here, one of the future things that it would be great to aim for is focusing attention more on risk reduction before extreme events, not just in its aftermath. Anita, Alessia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to talk to you. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates on our show. You can even check us out on YouTube now. Thank you for joining. See you next time.